not Leslie and Warren. You're Leslie and Warren, the actress, the dancer, the singer. Yes, thank you. Well, so how come you're doing a dumb knife throwing act? You know, Kermit, I thought you were the one person on this show who wasn't crazy. Me not crazy? I hired the others. Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, do you like puns? I have been known to enjoy the occasional pun. Uh, how are you doing this evening? Oh, it's uh, another week, another dollar. It'll be nice to sleep in tomorrow. This is a feat of lunatic daring. We're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Before we get started... I'd like to ask you to check us out on social media at Lunatic Daring, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, lunaticdaring.com, where you can find all of our episodes, our watch list, and our bibliography. We are currently going through The Muppet Show. We're back at uh, two episodes at a time now, after a brief respite from that. Um, and uh, we got two, uh, I think, pretty good episodes. Yeah, they're pretty solid. I like them both. There's some great numbers, and uh, one that's very important to us. Yeah, let's let's get started. Let's get started. Show with our very special guest star, Leslie Ann Warren. Yeah! Like Leslie Ann Warren? I, I thought she was a lot of fun. She grew on me as the episode went on. It's kind of like Marissa Berenson. Yeah, that's one of the, the comparisons I drew. Although I, w- I would argue that Leslie's not quite as dark. She's not as dark, but her final number really sells, sells me on her. Mm-hmm. Leslie Ann Warren was born in New York City on August 16th, 1946. Her father was a real estate agent and her mother was a singer. She showed a penchant and a desire to entertain at an early age. So she went to both the Professional Children's School, which is a nonprofit prep school for working or aspiring child actors and dancers in New York. And then she went to the New York High School of Music and Art until she, uh, once she turned 13. Basically, she's been studying dancing and acting and singing since she was six. In 1951, at the age of 14, Leslie began training as a ballet dancer at the School of American Ballet. She also got into the prestigious actor studio at the age of 17, reportedly the youngest person to ever be accepted into that program. Her Broadway debut was in 1963, and she won an award for her role in the 1965 musical Drat the Cat, although the show itself was a gigantic flop. Her first major TV role was that same year in Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella musical playing mm, Cinderella. She did episodes of Gunsmoke, The Mod Squad, and others. Her first movie was 67's The Happiest Millionaire, which was the last film that Walt Disney worked on before he died. Is this film something real, or will it she was the only woman on the Mission Impossible team for their 1970-71 to 71 season, but she left the part after a year, feeling that she wasn't experienced enough, but ended up winning a Golden Globe uh, for the role. So remember, the worst critic of your own work is you. Here's the part where I list movies and shows she's been in. Movies. Victor Victoria, Clue, Life Stinks, Color of Night, <laughs> and that movie's bad. Going All the Way, I think that one, that's the one with Affleck and Jeremy Davies, uh, Teaching Mrs. Tingle, The Limey, the great uh, film Secretary, and most recently, the 2020 crime drama Echo Boomers. Never heard of it. Uh, TV, The Carol Burnett Show, Love American Style, Columbo, SWAT, 79 Park Avenue. She got a Golden Globe for that one. Whole bunch of TV miniseries and films. She did A Will and Grace, Touched by an Angel, Crossing Jordan, The Practice, Desperate Housewives, Psych, Community, Daredevil, and a bunch of other stuff. 
Here's the thing that will resonate with Nick the most. From 1967 to 1975, Leslie was married to hairstylist turned studio mogul John Peters, producer of such giant films as A Star is Born and Tim Burton's Batman. Nick, she was married to the guy that brought us the giant mechanical spider at the end of Wild Wild West. That's a weird connection. They had a son, Christopher. She's been married two more times, the last one in 2000 to an ad exec, and it seems to have stuck. She is currently 75. Fun fact, Leslie was one of the finalists to play Lois Lane in Richard Donner's Superman in 1978. She didn't get the part, but footage of her screen test is available online if you want to see what that movie could have been like. Oh, uh, would you like um, uh, a cookie? Oh, what kind? Uh, macaroons. Thanks, anyway. Uh, how about a glass of wine? I never drink when I fly. You never drink when you fly. Uh, now then, um... Is it true that you can see through anything? Yes, pretty much. Uh-huh. And uh, you are totally impervious to pain? Well, so far. Um, what color underwear am I wearing? Pink. Uh, do you have a, a first name? I, I had no idea who she was. I liked her on this episode, though. I think she's a great guest. Um, this is Muppet Show episode number 315 with special guest star Leslie Ann Warren, produced mid-November 1978, debuted early 1979, uh, directed by Philip Casson. In our cold open, uh, Scooter comes in to wish... It, we already get a little controversial here in this cold open. <laughs> oh. it, it could have gone a couple of different ways. The way it happened to go... Um, Scooter comes in to wish Leslie luck about the show. He says, and good luck to both of you. And she's like, what do you mean both of you? And Lunch Encounter Monster pops up from under the table. And um, he's like, we don't need luck. We got skill. And he like slaps. Now he slaps her and the backside of her body. How high up on the body? I'm not sure. What is going on in this scene where he keeps hitting her? Is he spanking her? Or Pretty is he sure hitting he her is. on the back? I mean... <laughs> One of these things is less dirty. I don't know if hitting her on the back repeatedly, unless she's, I don't know, choking, is a better scenario. See, to me, it reminded me of like a football coach, like smacking you on the ass, like, get out there. We could do this. We got this. I don't know you if know? it makes this less creepy, but she seemed to be enjoying it, I, I guess. Gonzo blows his trumpet and a cow noise comes out of it. And then he's visited by a cow that I don't think we've seen for a while, that cow. Not since last season, I don't think. But then again, the season, like the passage of time on the season has been kind of weird. The backstage story is partially, let me check. The backstage story is pretty much entirely <laughs> based on a pun on Leslie's name. So Kermit comes out. Tonight, we've got a real treat for you because our very special guest stars are that world famous knife throwing act, Leslie and Warren. Uh, uh, but but first, Kermit, uh, Kermit, what is it, Scooter? Well, only one of them showed up. What? How yeah. can you have a knife-throwing act with only one person? Where's the other one? Well, I don't know. Maybe he had an accident on the last gig. <laughs> uh, well, as I was saying, we have a really terrific show tonight with our very special guest star, Leslie and or Warren. Uh, wait a minute, aren't you? I am a guest star. Oh, and gentlemen, it's Leslie and Warren! <laughs> And we're going to get a lot of that. I felt like the the actual backstage story that pulled on to the front stage is actually going to be our next, or it starts with our next bit. I mean, this comes back a couple of times, too. Maybe it was a dual backstage, but... We arrive at what is our titular scene. It only took us three seasons. Uh, so the great Gonzo, in one of his most famous bits, uh, is uh, going to try to... Perform a feat of lunatic daring. <laughs> Before your very eyes, I will ride this motorcycle up this ramp and jump directly into that box, landing safely. 
between those two elderly gentlemen. He doesn't get there. Although I love the fact that he's tied them to their chairs. You don't want them to panic. But Gonzo doesn't even make it off the ramp this time. But he's going to get another shot. <laughs> he's nothing if not determined. Now Kermit's already upset because they're off to a bad start. He's confused. Uh, he, he mistook the guest star for a knife throwing act. And then Gonzo's motorcycle act has gone horribly. <laughs> and uh, Gonzo comes back with his motorcycle and he, he starts playing with the with the with something. He uses a word that I know is a motorcycle word, but I don't know what it actually means. And he gives it a little juice like he hits the nitro button, basically. <laughs> and he goes flying down the back stairs. It's a great stun, actually. It looks really good. Yeah. You could tell at the very end that, that Gonzo is just basically a doll. Because mm -hmm. you just see him sort of like listing from side to side. So Kermit comes out to introduce Leslie's first number, but he is greeted by Leslie and Warren, the dancing cucumbers. Well, here we are, ready to go on. What are you two doing out here? We're the very special guest stars. Right, Leslie and Warren, the dancing cucumbers. <laughs> see, he's Leslie, and I'm Warren. Yeah, yeah, but our special guest star is a big TV star that sings and dances and acts and does comedy. Yeah, but can she make salad? I'm kind of neutral on, on this particular runner, but... So we get Leslie's first number. This one's very long, and it is a an interpretation of Beauty and the Beast. A, a, a ballet interpretation of Beauty and the Beast. The first weird part is Jerry Nelson comes on as the announcer, but he sounds like he's announcing like the, the like the dog show. Mm. An interpretation of Beauty and the Beast by Miss Leslie Ann Warren. She then does a ballet interpretation of Beauty and the Beast with Beast being played by Dog Lion. First of all, this is basically the plot of Shrek. Yeah, I, that was my immediate thought. It was long. It was long. It was fine. I'm glad they threw a punchline on there. It's I, I don't know much about ballet. I know that it's something that takes a lot of de dedication, so I always try to be respectful while discussing it. But I'm familiar enough with a folktale and different versions of the folktale to see the beats that they were following. But I thought it was okay. I will say this is the most... Maurice Sendak set that I have ever seen. I agree with that. Well, Dog Lion's a very Sendak character. The music for this was written by Larry Grossman, the music director. It's just kind of a parody of ballet songs, of ballet music. So it's kind of like a little bit of Tchaikovsky in there. Mm. Beautiful woman's dancing, and then Dog Lion shows up. He's the beast. There's a little bit of little bit of give and take where she's trying to resist him being a nice person and, and pushing him away, and then she finally gives in to him, and they basically fall in love through dancing. And she gives him a flower, and then leaves, and he dies. And then she comes back and kisses him to wake him up. You know, and you're waiting. Like if you know the story of Beauty and the Beast, mm -hmm. you're waiting for him to turn into a handsome prince, right? You're waiting for him to turn into the man that he was before he was cursed. But instead, she ends up looking like Dog Lion in a somewhat unsettling mask. That's a fair statement, although she committed to it. It's the same thing as Shrek. But years and years beforehand. Well, uh, that explains a lot. So then we, uh, we go backstage and Fozzie lets Kermit know that Gonzo, it's good news. It's really good news, Nick. Gonzo has half of his motorcycle bit down. 
He's got half of it right. So I've got to say two things. One, Mm -hmm. Gonzo's bike will not pass smog. It just won't. (laughs) Two. In 78, it might have. Two. I don't know if I've ever sympathized with Gonzo the way that I do in this particular scene, because (laughs) in theory, I know how to drive a manual car, but I'm terrible at parking them. So... Like, I'm not going to stall. I'll be fine. But the first time I I practiced driving with my old man, I ended up, I don't know what I did or how. And someone that knows the mechanics of this better than I do will be able to elaborate. But I tried to park and somehow ended up lurching forward onto our lawn and he had to pull the emergency brake. So technically I can drive (laughs) a stick. I just, you know, I'm not sure I can. Don't know how to land it. it. Yeah. Gonto has a half of his motorcycle jump perfected. Which half? The the takeoff. What about the landing? What? And he comes just just smashing into Kermit and Fozzie. Just takes them out. We'll put that in the category of like things that should have killed them. We're not quite Looney Tunes logic, but we're on our way. The landing still needs work. Uh, so now we get a great pigs in space. This is a good one. The swine trek is passing through. They they do this a lot, but they're passing through an, uh, uh, a series of quote unquote dumbo rays, which only affect stupid people. Now, you look on the bridge of the swine trek, you know where this is headed, right? Oh, yeah. Straight for Link's forehead. Link thinks it's going to be piggy, but that's just his male chauvinist side. The dumbo rays, which are like kaleidoscopic, like it's just like a little red star, basically. Come zooming through the screen. Piggy's fine. Julius is fine. But Link is just left staring dead in the space, completely neutralized by the Dumbo rays. First of all, Piggy tries to wake him up by yelling Suey in his ear. <laughs> Once she realizes Link is comatose, I love it. She instantly dubs herself Captain. This is a chance of a lifetime. I am taking over. Move it, fatso. Piggy. <laughs> Captain Piggy. She starts flicking with the controls and is like, I'm taking this thing for a ride. <laughs> it's her time to shine. Uh, I just love it because he's like, because uh, Strange Pork's like, Captain Piggy, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, but I, I love that she's like, I've been waiting for this for so long. And then he comes out of it and Strange Pork is like, oh, he's going to come out of it really soon. And um, it doesn't seem like much of a problem if it just makes you comatose for like 10 seconds. 10 seconds? I must warn you, Captain, Dumbo Rays have one side effect. The victim becomes a tap dancer. A what? And uh, the pig dances. The pig can dance. And it's real funny. Big laugh from the kids. Very, very good. So we get to our UK spot. Now, I know the song Mac the Knife, but apparently I've never paid attention to the lyrics. I didn't realize there were lyrics. I think I've only heard instrumental versions. Also, have we seen less of Sam this season? I think a little bit, yeah. I mean, he he had a couple of big moments. He was with Liberace. He was with Alice Cooper. Mm. Dr. Teeth is going to play Mac the Knife, which is an old, um, it was actually a German song. Kind of makes sense. It's from a German musical called Three Penny Opera. But it kind of became like a swing standard, you know, uh, Louis Armstrong, Ella, uh, Bobby Darren's was the most famous version. I remember as a kid, there was a series of McDonald's commercials that were set to Mac the Knife. The lyrics are horrifying. Oh, the shark has pretty teeth, dear, and he 
shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has Mac Heath dear, and he keeps it out of sight. Stop, 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 stop. This is an appalling song of gore and violence. Yeah, so well, Sam's on to it. Sam realizes that the, the lyrics are very grim and he confronts Dr. Teeth and Dr. Teeth just convinces him that uh, no, nothing that that it's all slang. And that the reason Sam is offended by the song is he doesn't get the slang. I would say Sam is in the right. I mean, not he's not in the right saying that you can't sing this song. The song's fine. But Sam is right that the, the lyrics are violent. Oh, very much so. <laughs> Talks about leaving someone bleeding crimson on the ground. And who did it? It might have been Mac the Knife. <laughs> like, Mac the Knife is like a serial killer. On the sidewalk, Sunday morning, lies a body oozing life. Someone sneaking round the corner. Is that someone? Mac the knife. I don't fully grasp it, but I'm sure it's a lovely sentiment. So then Kermit introduces Leslie, who's going to be doing a number with Rolf, but she comes out. <laughs> so by the time we're done with the Muppet Show, we need to have like a a positional list of who the biggest sociopath on the Muppet Show is. Bunce and Honeydew's definitely on there. Scooter's absolutely on there. But Marvin Suggs and <laughs> those poor Muppaphones. Frank does things with Marvin he doesn't do very often. He's very funny with him. Uh, yeah, so Leslie comes out and what's waiting for him is Marvin Suggs and the Muppaphone. Where's Rolf? You're not Rolf. No, I am the beloved Marvin Suggs. And these are my Muppaphones. And we will accompany... Yo. <laughs> That's fine, but uh, where is Ralph? Who cares? <laughs> Music maestro! Oh, Marvin, you are so talented! And he starts playing the Blue Danube Waltz with, uh with the Muppaphone and she for the first time really we actually see the audience reaction to the Muppaphone on her face which is oh my god <laughs> what are you doing to those little balls the best line though what are you doing making the beautiful music <laughs> these little creatures are alive and you're hitting them of course they are alive you cannot make music by hitting dead creatures <laughs> He's tried. <laughs> well, he's, I mean, remember like a couple episodes ago, we saw him with Kermit. When Kermit asked him what happens when the Muppaphones go flat. And he says, I don't think you want to know. Just piles of dead Muppaphones. I, or does he sell them as like loofahs? You just like, you have a day in the life episode with each of the Muppet cast and you get a different genre of movie. And Marvin Suggs is a slasher flick or like one of those really, really uncomfortable, like you're trapped in my basement movies. So then we find out that, uh, so Rolf comes out and it turns out that someone locked him in his dressing room. <laughs> I didn't know Rolf had a dressing room, but someone locked, his, locked him in his dressing room. And Marvin gives a very guilty looking, innocent look. We move them up a phone out of the way and we get a nice number where Rolf and Leslie Ann sing just the way you are, which is a 1977 Billy Joel song. This, to me, was the moment the episode kind of like, not ground to a halt, but like, this is the chill moment. <laughs> Just a breather before the bathroom moment, kind of, too. Before it comes next. You, you need that sort of like palate cleanser before you get back to the crazy. 
Don't go changing To try to please me You never let me down before Don't imagine You're too familiar And I don't see Actually familiar with the album and there are some really really great songs on it and that one's not bad but it's not one of the top songs either so then uh kermit comes out to introduce gonzo again but gonzo is ready to go <laughs> styler and wardorf aren't worried this time though and now for the second time this evening the great gonzo will attempt a motorcycle jump off of this stage into that box up there landing safely between those two elderly gentlemen we're not afraid. We know Gonzo. If at first you don't succeed, fail, fail again. <laughs> and he can't, Gonzo can't hold it back. Kermit's like trying to introduce him and Gonzo's like, you better do it now. I'm ready to go. You better do it now. And uh, the curtains open and Gonzo comes flying and smashes right into Stetler and Mulder's box in a great special effect. If at first you don't succeed, fail, fail again. That's the basic mantra of game design. Uh, so now we get what I consider the highlight of this episode. Yeah, it's great. There are a couple of different ways to interpret it. There are. So we have a scene with basically a disco and um, Link hits on Leslie, gives a little pickup line. She's wearing this nice red outfit. Well, uh, hi there, good looking. Who is that? Well, that was my snappy opening line. It's sort of an icebreaker. Well, I'd, um, I'd hate to break perfectly good ice. Uh, what? And, well, okay, first of all, let's get it out of the way. Link's um, shirt is unbuttoned down to his navel. Link has some very prominent chest hair. Again, very 70s. But uh, it's a very interesting look. My eight-year-old daughter, like, looked at me. She's like, are you not going to say anything about his chest hair? <laughs> I was like, what am I supposed to say? <laughs> like... Am I supposed to shield your eyes? I don't know what I was supposed to do. It's a puppet with chest hair. What do you want me to do? Now, this reminded me a lot of Raquel Welch and Fozzie, mm-hmm. where Link throws a little pickup line her way and it totally works. And she starts hitting on him. And the more she hits on him, the more uncomfortable he gets. Now, with Fozzie, it was just one little line. Raquel Welch wants me to come up to her dressing room. And Fozzie, you know, when faced with actual sexuality, is like, uh, and backs off. It's probably some poor performance anxiety there. Link is being, again, he is being, um, he is confronted direct by direct, like, romantic, sexual, actual, you know, uh, attention. And he can't handle it. He just can't. So before we get to the music... Um, uh, to the dance number. Why do we think he can't handle it? So it could be one of a couple of reasons. One, um, he might not actually be into women. Um, yeah, it's possible. I, I'm thinking this mostly because outside of the, the V-neck shirt, I also noticed a very strong neckerchief. 
And that's often been coded. But I'm also aware that there are people I know, I promise I am not one of these people, who, or guys in particular, who much prefer the idea of pursuing a woman to being pursued because they don't necessarily like a woman who's super forward or super into them, which that's a way to to live, I guess. But Lynn could not prefer women. That's definitely the case. He's a little Lothario with Piggy, but, um, you know, maybe that's just, uh, maybe that's just for show. I think... Or maybe that's maybe that's Captain Link. That could be that, or Link could be uh, trying to perform in certain ways or keep up certain appearances. Because the way this is set up, Link is playing himself. It's true. She even says, like, oh, my God, you're Link Hogthrob. This is set up to be like a realistic scenario. So the idea is Link is out partying at a disco looking like that. Now, to my knowledge, he has no R&B album coming out. And so, so this is supposed to feel like kind of... Not behind the scenes, but like this is what Link would do in his off time in 1978. He's meant to be looked at, not to be touched. <laughs> I guess so. He's a delicate, um, delicate hog. Leslie keeps trying to grope at Link, and Link keeps trying to get away, and she breaks into a song. She sings The Last Dance by Donna Summer. Last dance, last chance for love. Oh, yes, it's my last chance. Romance. Which was actually an Oscar-winning song. It was in a movie called Thank God It's Friday in 1978 and won an Oscar. So again, it would have been a very recent song. Leslie sings the hell out of it. All the while, man-handling, pig-handling Link. I will say that this is the best at-the-dance sketch that they've done so far. (laughs) This reminded me of a couple things... Uh, like I said, it reminded me of, of Fozzie and Raquel at first, but then it reminded me of the Apache dance a little bit. That's where I that's where I went with it, because she's sort of throwing him around a little bit, although I don't think she wants to hurt him. No, she wants to dance with him. Yeah. She's she's feeling romantical towards this idiot pig. And then she ends up uh, removing her her like gown and revealing like a like a showgirl dress underneath. Mm-hmm. And, like, it gets kind of sexy, and she starts dancing for him and stuff. And, um, yeah, it's pretty... Uh, yeah, I marked in here, I, I circled his chest in our show notes, and I just wrote Pendergrass. <laughs> now, at one point, does he get the cop a feel? I don't like, think Like, she's moving to. his hands all over her body. Like, incidentally, collaterally, yeah. I was not, like, super high on her until this number. This completely made me made her me love her as a guest star because mm-hmm. <laughs> she goes for it and you know who is great in this jim freaking henson oh yeah playing link's reluctance playing the whole time link trying to get away from her he eventually gets into it a little bit right of course because stockholm syndrome and then everybody else starts dancing and and yeah it's a great closing number it happens to be really really funny at the same time with a great performance by her a great performance by jim kermit comes out to bring out Leslie to say goodnight, and they meet another group. Who knew there was an act called Leslie and Warren? Are you kidding? Sure, everybody knows us, Leslie and Warren. Yep, that's us. <laughs> oh, I get it. Uh, let me see. You're Les, you're Lee, and you're Warren. See? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah uh, by the way, who's the lady? It's our final pun, thank God. Yeah, there's no build on the puns. I, I like. I half yeah. forget that they happen, to be honest. Yeah, I I like this episode. Like I said, it got better for me at the end. This is one where the closing really did it for me. Mm-hmm. It was a really solid closer. 
one of my mom's favorite movies and one that I usually like I don't sit down and watch very often, but I can't escape seeing some of it every year. It's White Christmas, Irving Berlin's White Christmas. Tell me a little bit about Danny Kay. Danny Kay, born David Daniel Kaminsky, was born in Brooklyn, New York, on January 18th, 1911. His parents had immigrated over. Uh, they were Jacob and Clara. He's the youngest of three boys, and he's the only one that was born in the States. He attended public school in East New York, uh, in Brooklyn, and they would eventually rename the school to honor him. His, it's, it's interesting to see what a big deal he becomes for two reasons. One, I had no idea who Danny Kay was. And two, he's going to go through a rough patch in his teens. I'll get to that in just a second. But looking at it is just sort of like, uh, I guess looking at someone like Donald Glover and realizing that 50, 60 years from now, people might not know who he is in the same way. And some people still will. But those newer generations won't have any frame of reference for him. They won't know how he crossed over from acting to music or to stand up or any number of these other things. And Danny Kay is someone who's a, a very big talent. They'll never understand how he became Lando Calrissian. But his mom died when he was in his early teens. And not long after that, he and his friend Lewis ran away to Florida and they just sort of busked for a little while to try to make a living that didn't last. He ended up returning to New York and in a move that's kind of atypical for what I understood dads to be like at this point in time, his father didn't really pressure him to go back to school or to find a job. He wanted to give Danny a chance to sort of mature and discover his own abilities. Maybe he was worried he would take off again. Maybe he recognized that he was probably still grieving over his mom. Danny would go on to hold a series of jobs in his teens and get fired from basically all of them. Uh, he worked as a soda jerk. He investigated claims for auto insurance. He was an office clerk. He got a job working for a dentist and he got fired after the dentist found him using the dental drill on office woodwork. This is noteworthy <laughs> because years later in 1939, he would marry that dentist's daughter. One <laughs> nice. Miss Sylvia nice. Fine. They eloped in 1940. We're not quite there yet. The Catskills Mountains in southern New York, he would earn his trade as, I, I hope I don't mispronounce this, I don't think I will, but it's something called a tumbler, which as I understand it is very similar to an MC. Uh, and he was a Borschbelt sort of comedian as he did this. He joined the Three Terpsichoreans, which was a vaudeville dance act in 1933. Uh, they would, they would tour the U.S. and parts of Asia with the show La Vie Paris, which is noteworthy specifically because during a stay in Osaka, in Japan, a typhoon hit the city, and if Danny had been standing like a little bit to the left in his hotel room, he would have died because a piece of the hotel was actually blown into the room and oh, wow. just happened to luckily miss him. The city was stuck in the storm, there was no power, and Danny tried to help calm everyone down on stage with a flashlight and singing and like doing facial impressions and things like that. And that would inspire him to do a lot of pantomime gestures and facial expressions that would sort of cement his reputation as he went on. There's nothing like that first real hit. There's that, but there's also being able to fly with it if something is just completely out of your control. Like, well, we're here now. We might as well. When, when Kay returned to the U.S., he struggled to find bookings. Um, he worked for Burlesque for a little while, but he would actually 
start working with, uh, like, I, I think another one of our guests, and I can't remember who, they were also involved with educational pictures in New York. But in 1937, that was Kay's film debut. He would do a series of two real comedies where he played a manic, fast-talking Russian. That lasted a year. He would also end up participating in the Straw Hat Review, which opened in 1939. And this was actually a turning point for him because while the, the review itself didn't last very long, I think it was only open for like 10 weeks and it didn't do super well, critics started to notice Danny and more importantly, and I've, I think this is another trend with another one of our, our guests in a past, past episode, a playwright named Moss Hart saw Danny and really wanted to cast him in a Broadway comedy called Lady in the Dark. This is where Danny starts to hit his stride. And I gotta, he's, he's done a lot of things. I'm going to start flying through things now. <laughs> um, sure. Yeah, absolutely. His feature film debut was in a 1944 comedy called Up in Arms. Uh, he also had his own radio program for about a year from 1945 to 1946 called The Danny K Show on CBS. He was asked to participate in a USO tour following the end of World War II, which pulled him away from that. And he kept good relationships with CBS. They just made him promise not to have a radio show on anyone else's network after that. Uh, he starred in several movies with Virginia Mayo in the 1940s, including things like The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, which I did not realize was a remake. Now comes the first movement. Presto vivace, argumento molto, contabile molto, choclo molto. And we have the first theme, which is naturally played on the first film. Bing, 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 bing. This represents a young girl which is living with her wicked guardian who is a French horn. The Inspector General, uh, Chad mentioned White Christmas. There's also one called The Court Gesture. And we will hear mention of Hans Christian Andersen tonight, uh, which was one of two biopics he did. He also did The Five Pennies in 1959 about jazz pioneer Red Nichols. An interesting thing is a lot of what Danny did was improvised, but anything that he did that was written was largely written by his wife, Sylvia Fine. And Danny was very well known for doing a lot of like tongue twisters and things of that. And they were written by her? Yeah, they were written by her. Uh, he actually played Geppetto in the television musical adaptation of Pinocchio that starred other Muppet Show guest Sandy Duncan. He would also play Captain Hook opposite Mia Farrow in the Peter Pan musical. There's... So, I would have... Love to meet Danny Kay and also been very, very frustrated by D Danny Kay because Danny Kay wasn't just on film and television. He also had a career in music. Danny Kay had perfect pitch. Danny Kay could not read music. Danny Kay conducted world famous orchestras while not being able to read music because he had to learn the scores by ear, which means sometimes somehow he's able to conduct without reading music. Put me in front of a Metallica guitar solo. I can do the same thing. I guess, like, I could improvise something. It'll get kind of weird. I'll, I'll feel better if Thundercat's there. But he also had a, a large interest in cooking. He was an honorary member of the American College of Surgeons and the American Academy of Pediatrics. He did a lot of charity work. He did a lot of charity I was going to say, like, how can you be an honorary surgeon? That seems like a bad idea. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I feel like that's what barbers used to be. <laughs> it's just a terrible idea. He was married to Sylvia Fine for life once they were married, accepting like a short separation in 1947 and 1948 when he was involved with an actress named Eve Arden. There was a rumor that he had had a romantic relationship with Laurence Olivier, although that's not substantiated and doesn't seem to be supported by anything else. 
Danny Kay would die of heart failure on March 3rd, 1987, uh, which was brought on by complications from hepatitis C, which he received from a blood transfusion. I This guy was a monolith, and I had no idea who he was. He's a legend. Yeah, which the way they treated him this episode just feels rough. Those early teenage years were, were definitely, they would have molded that because he could have become someone who's very bitter and mean. He could have become someone who's very entitled. But all indications between him losing his mom, him going down to Florida, him coming back, him getting fired a lot, him almost dying in Japan. I, I forgot to mention, he was the first American actor to visit uh, Tokyo after the bombs were dropped. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's he seems like he's a pretty pretty good guy to know. We've got Muppet Show, episode 316, featuring guest star Danny Kay, produced between November 21st, November 23rd, 1978, which makes the turkey a bit more appropriate, premiering in the UK on December 25th, same year, and making it to the States February 1st of 1979, directed by Philip Casson. We're already at 316. 316. Can't believe we're already at 316. It's flying by. So... We have our cold open. Uh, Scooter finds Danny taking a nap in the in the dressing room <laughs> and wakes him up to inform him that the show's going to start in 15 seconds, which I think like right before he does that, Scooter's like, it's so great that Danny's completely unflappable and Danny becomes yeah, a what complete a, what a pro. Wreck. What a pro. And then he ends up hitting his head on the dresser and just sort of falls back into the chair and goes back to sleep. And Scooter asks if, or Scooter wonders if that's how he took his first nap, which <laughs> I just, if that's the case, I'm worried about Danny. Cause that Russian, Russian concussion is just, it's bad news. Yeah. I like this cold open a lot. Actually. He, he, he hurries it. As soon as he hears 15 seconds, he's like 15 seconds. I got to do my makeup. I got to do my hair. I got to do whatever. And then bashes his head, to the wardrobe <laughs> knocks himself back out. There we go to the Muppet Show theme, which, like, it's it's almost a concept episode, but it's like a soft concept episode, because it's just, what if Statler and Waldorf weren't there? They don't yeah. make it far, <laughs> but still. Statler and Waldorf just leave the building, and Gonzo's trumpet sounds like a coach's whistle, uh, at which point someone either throws or kicks a soccer ball at him, and it pushes the trumpet down his throat, which... Made me gag. Didn't make Gonzo gag, though. Like, no, I was very disturbed by this image. It's fair. It's of this of this trumpet shoved down Gonzo's throat, and all we see is the perfectly understandable to find that disturbing. I I, I felt it like my throat tightened when I saw it. Like, both times I watched this, my throat kind of like tightened up a little bit. They even show him in profile to make sure you see it. You know. Oh yeah. So we get our opening number, which is. I have actually heard the song. This is like two episodes in a row where I've heard a good number of the songs. But we've got a group of whatnots singing Aquarius as their hair grows fairly quickly. When the moon is in the seventh house And Jupiter aligns with Mars Then peace will guide the planet And love will steer the stars This is the dawning as my hair is currently longer than it's ever been because I haven't got a haircut since the pandemic, I found this weirdly relatable. <laughs> Aquarius is a song from the 1967 musical Hair. It was made into a pop musical, or into a pop hit by The Fifth Dimension. A lot of people in more recent times would know it as the closing credits song for The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Yeah. 
yeah, it's just like a bunch of jump cuts with people getting longer hair, I think. Sort of Tales from the Dark Side episode or an Amazing Stories episode where a guy got hair extensions and it turned out that it was an alien plot for them to take over his mind while giving him longer and longer hair. That sounds like Tales from the Crypt. I don't think it was Tales from the Crypt. I think it might have been Tales from the Dark Side, but I could be wrong because it was all sort of blur. No child is going to get that the song is from the musical hair. Therefore, their hair is growing. It's a weird, it's almost like more meta than the Muppets ever get. I just assumed they were trying to make them hippies, but that also works. So, I was not expecting this turn, but I was actually very happy with it. Um, nature and the Muppets abhor a vacuum, and if we don't have two old people up heckling during the show, we are going to get two members of the band up there heckling during the show. Floyd goes up to the balcony to look for Statler and Waldorf. I'm not sure why. I wrote that too. Why are they looking for them? Are they the only ones that pay? I just, maybe, maybe Floyd's their dealer. No, Kermit's with him too. Kermit's down below. They're, they're actively worried that Statler and Waldorf aren't there. Okay. So that's, that, that could be a wellness check situation though, because those guys are very old and that's a very unpleasant surprise to have on the night of a show where it's just like, those old guys aren't heckling. And while we like the quiet, we, we worry about the too quiet. They're kind of like toddlers. A wellness check. I also love that if that is the case, Kermit decided that Floyd would be the best equipped to do it, because he's probably half-stoned anyway. No, looks like they split for good. Maybe they didn't like the acoustics. Why, can't you hear what's being said on stage? Every word. (laughs) Yeah, the wellness check is my story, and I'm going to stick to it for at least, like, the next 30 seconds. Everyone is looking for Statler and Waldorf, though, including Danny, who's a great sport about this, like he seems to be about most things, and Scooter. Um, and then they find them and they realize that they leave, but they don't go very far. No, they're sitting in the back alley. <laughs> they don't have a lot of places to go to. I half expected to see a dumpster with a fire inside of it. Danny, who is someone who's already been presented as just a little insecure, learns that Statler and Waldorf left because they think that Kay is the worst performer on Earth. Well, I tell you, it's almost as bad out here as it is inside. Yes. <laughs> Either way, we're sitting around looking at garbage. (laughs) Still, I'd rather be here for this show. Yeah, yeah, the Muppets are always about the same. But this week's guest star, who? What's his face, Kay? Yeah, who? I tell you, he is the worst performer on Earth. No, you can't be serious. Well, I am so. He's not the worst performer on Earth. Well, then who is? Clive Kowinga, the singing civil servant. Yeah, yeah, you're right. He is pretty bad. What an act. He sings the whole pest control code in the key of F. Yeah, he, he overhears them bashing somebody with the last name K, and he assumes it's him, and he, he, feels, he feels dejected by these old men. Poor Danny. Poor Danny. So our next scene. I mean, is Waldorf wearing a pillbox hat? Absolutely. He looks quite stylish. We're also reminded that Statler's legs are freakishly long. It's... He looks kind of like Jackie Kennedy. <laughs> um, Go ahead. Our, our next bit is going to be difficult for me to avoid a long tangent about the movie Darkman, because for whatever reason, that was formative for me. Sam Raimi's Darkman. There is a long, long lecture that I will give on Darkman for a later time, because it's, it's very, very tangentially related to what we're talking about here. We have a construction worker who's a whatnot. He's taking a break for lunch, and he, like, the first thing he does is he peels a banana, and then he sees food start dancing out of his lunchbox, at which point you should probably not trust that banana. 
there's a famous photo of construction workers eating their lunch at that height. Yes. Um, I, I don't know how common a practice that was or is. But the food is dancing out to the tune of a song called Babies Coming Home, uh, which is a country uh, a country instrumental by Chet Atkins and Jerry Reed. came out in 1974. We're getting a lot more recent with our musical choices. Yeah, I've noticed that too. But as it turns out, that, that lunchbox and possibly everything inside of that lunchbox was actually a mimic. And this is why you don't open random chests in D&D without someone checking to see if it's got a pulse. Sometimes Lunchbox eats you. My only, not issue with this number, but like, no, this isn't a negative, but this felt like an earlier number. I could see that. Remember Glowworm? Yeah, a little bit. But like, it, the palette and the, the setup in general, it feels pretty Sesame Street. It doesn't necessarily feel, it, it gets dark like a Muppet Show sketch could, and it's definitely a Muppet Show sketch. But everything about that initial setup. You're right. It's a Sesame Street sketch until he gets eaten instead of them telling you about how nutritious they are. Yeah. Every show, Stadler and Waldorf sit up here. Show after show after show. Now I see why. You see why they come? No, I see why they left. (laughs) I've noticed this dynamic in a lot of couples I know where they get along a lot better if they're both picking on someone else. I don't know why this is the case. I'd say it's fairly universal. (laughs) I I mean, it's a joint activity. I get it. It's just nice to do things as a team. And it is sometimes. If you ended up with someone who can like feed off of your jokes and elevate them and you can do the same for them. That's a that's a magical thing. Here's my problem with this. Janice and Floyd are in the booth or in the in the box. Right. And the whole storyline is Statler and Waldorf aren't in the box, but Janice and Floyd are. And they're they're filling in the thing and they're doing a little bit of heckling. Why is there no Fozzie? Why is there no Fozzie number? We haven't had a stand up from Fozzie in a while. Fozzie's usually doing something else, isn't he? But this is a slam dunk. It would be great. But but the whole idea, but Statler and Waldorf are Fozzie's nemesis, nemeses, right? So like the idea that they're not there, I you know, and if Fozzie, it, what if? Excuse me, Jerry Jewel, get out of the way. What if, <laughs> like? They say, like, you know, they tell Fozzie Statler and Waldorf aren't there tonight, and he gets super excited to go out and do his number, and then Janice and Floyd wreck it. <laughs> what if Fozzie's actually doing great if Statler and Waldorf aren't there until Floyd and Janice wreck it? To me, there's, like, this tether from the balcony to the stage, or this tether from the balcony to Fozzie. And so um, I just thought it was a missed opportunity to, ha- to be doing a balcony storyline. And especially involving the absence of Statler and Waldorf and not bring Fozzie out. But, uh, you know, yeah, I'm not really here to second guess Jerry Jewell. I just thought, uh, I just, I don't know. It's just, I, I was expecting it and I didn't get it. Now we get to what's probably the centerpiece, right? Yeah, I could say that. Um, we, so apparently Danny knows Piggy or he's known Piggy. Apparently. A debatable period of time, either since she was skinny or since she wasn't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, Piggy doesn't out-and-out assault Danny, which is nice. She assaults the piano. She breaks the piano. (laughs) So, also, I'm going to ask you something and expect that you cut it out of the podcast if uh, it's not okay. I was literally drinking water when you said that. (laughs) Sorry. So close to a spit take. (laughs) Um, I think she's just petting him. She keeps grabbing the neckerchief. It's intimate, but I wouldn't go so far as to say 
what you said. Okay, we can cut that if it's not allowed. I wasn't sure, but it's it was the one note that I made on this particular exchange. It's just actually what I'll what I'll probably do is bleep it and let people guess what you said. Okay, Danny makes the mistake of referencing Miss Piggy's age, and then I, I heard you sing this song once before. Thank you. I heard it <laughs> some time ago. I heard you sing this song, and I thought. The way you did it was absolutely memorable. That's funny. I don't remember that. Oh, well, well that was years and years and years ago. If you're going <laughs> to. So here's the part where I start to really I've respect. I've known you for Danny years King. and years and years. If you're going to cross the line, you have to cross the line at least twice. And he does. Seemingly on accident, because not only does he reference Miss Picky's age. Uh, What I meant was uh, way back when you were thin. Which is, you know. I knew you when you were skinny. Just a great way to open um, if you haven't seen someone in a while. There is not one person on the planet that that is smart to say to. No. Not one person. Yes, and... I have known and I have What are we doing, improv? Yes. uh, I have definitely been part of those dynamics where there's like a sort of camaraderie that's born of... Hatred? Not hatred, but a certain kind of animosity. Like, not hard animosity. Like, you've... It's sort of like the siblings just not needing to say nice things to each other. Because despite what my younger brother would have probably liked to be the case, I you don't need to be friends with your siblings. (laughs) It's nice if you are, but it's not like a given. We get along now fine if he's listening to this, but... Um, I think she gets really mad. I think she gets genuinely mad at him, though. I think she does, too, but she doesn't hit him. There's enough respect and admiration for Danny there for her to be like... She doesn't have time. Yeah, true. I think she's about to hit him, and then Scooter calls them to set. (laughs) That might be it. That might be what saves him. Stand by for cheek to cheek. Yeah, well... Oh, 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 yes. I'll see you on the... Battlefield. Uh, and now a timeless romantic duet uh, 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 sung by two dear friends, uh, I, I dearly hope. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Piggy and Danny Kay. Heaven, I'm in heaven. And my heart beats so that I can hardly speak. This is when my five-year-old, I need to point this out. I know I talk about my kids a lot, but, uh, you know, they're the people I'm watching this with. So my five-year-old, we get to this scene, and Piggy's in her dress, and Danny Kaye's there, and she doesn't get quite the comedy that the, that they don't like each other, and that's the joke of the, of the bit, is that they're angry. All she does, she looks at me and goes, I'm going to go do something else. I don't like the romantic stuff. This is the one that screams Katana, right? Yes. <laughs> I don't know, man. I have no idea who these kids are going to be. <laughs> yeah, and then Danny and, and Piggy came out, come out and they sing cheek to cheek together. And the last thing they want to do is be cheek to cheek. And it's very funny. To climb a mountain and to reach the highest peak. But it doesn't thrill me half as much as dancing cheek to cheek. Oh, I'd love to go out fishing yes. in I a like river or a creek. Although, to Danny's credit, he uh, fixes the problem by letting her know that he'd never known her when she was thin. (laughs) Yeah. There is a part of me that is molded by years and years of pranks that I was on the receiving end of, 
that just loves the double down or just like, yeah, no, if you're going to get in trouble, you might as go, might as well go all the way. Listen, fat shaming, you know, ableist jokes or whatever, you know, we don't, we, we, we shy away from those things now and uh, for good reason. Um, but this moment where he, he sets her up like they, cause the thing is that they're angry at each other. They start the number, they're singing cheek to cheek. And then over the course of the number, they kind of start to gel. Right. Mm. And they start to vibe. And by the end, you think, you know, all right, everything's okay now. And then he, and he says, yeah. Um, and I want you to know, Miss Piggy, I'm terribly sorry that I said I knew you when you were thin. Oh, Danielle, that's all right. <laughs> oh, you. And then he holds the long moment. There's a long beat there, if you remember. And then he goes, I never knew you when you were thin. <laughs> he blows it all up. So good. <laughs> like he, and it's like so they subtle. got the forgiveness, and then he blew it up. Oh, it's so good. The happiness I see when we're out together, out together, out together, out together, out together, out together dancing. Now. Are you watching them on the DVDs still? I am, yes. So did you see jogger, uh, the jogger sings jogging? Yes. One, two, three, four. Nice and easy. One, two, three, four. Oh, it's lovely. Jogging around the park in the dawn or the dark tones you up and leaves you fit. <sighs> Though it makes you puff and pant a bit. Because I did not. It is not on Disney Plus. So tell me about it. <laughs> um... Because I forgot to go back to my DVDs and watch it. I knew I was watching. I was going through my notes. I was like, this isn't on Disney Plus. And I forgot to go check my old copy of it. The jogger jogging is sort of a take or leave bit with uh, a whatnot who like the the most that happens is that he ends up getting chased down by a dog like repeatedly. But it's sort of the way that it's framed and set up sort of feels like uh, when mills of my mind. But with that as a point of comparison, it it sort of detracts from it. It's it's not bad. It's just kind of forgettable. I wonder why it's not on Disney Plus. Maybe there was just it's one of those silly rights things. Yeah, it's it's not bad. A one two three four in my tracksuit. A one two three four and galoshes. Hello, a pair of eyeballs sparkling and clear. Healthy days are near. <laughs> this next one, Nick, has the return of one of my favorite characters. The Swedish chef. A blunderbuss. Oh, well, yes. But <laughs> it's a blunderbuss. The blunderbuss. In way more skilled hands. Because yeah. <laughs> not only are we hanging out with the Swedish chef, but his uncle, which I was not <laughs> expecting at all. It was a little yeah. unsettling. Yeah. Danny dressed up as the Swedish chef playing his uncle. It yeah. also raises uncomfortable questions about, like, how your blood relation to a Muppet. Um, but... Well, we'll get to that when we talk about Jason Siegel and uh, Walter and the Muppets. Oh, yeah. 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 That's his name. But we call him Tom. All right. Now you understand, of course, Tom. You understand, of course, what we are doing tonight. We are taking an international dish. So anyway, the Swedish chef's uncle, as portrayed by Danny Kaye, is helping the chef in the kitchen. He translates mock Swedish for the chef, and he refers to him as Tom, which 
made me realize that we'd never actually heard a name for the Swedish chef outside of just calling him the Swedish chef. We still haven't. I felt like a terrible person because I was like, oh, it's just the Swedish chef. And that's just calling him by his job. He probably has hopes and dreams and probably shouldn't have that blunderbuss. But And his job and his nationality. Yeah. But That'd be like calling me that white podcaster. <laughs> uh, and to be clear, his name's not Tom. They're joking. <laughs> but he, he does give a very long name. And, uh, and then he says, but we call him Tom. And they mm. joke. Um, this gets a little disturbing with the turkey, though. So I guess they were trying to be as multicultural as they possibly could. Because... Yeah, they're going to make a Swiss turkey stuffed with Chinese ingredients to make a Yugoslavian chicken. I don't know what, what's wrong with that. Other than everything. <laughs> if you throw all of it into the pot, you get something that's truly egalitarian. But then they bring in a live turkey and it's it's terrified. Well, yeah, I mean, I want you to imagine going into a spot and being told we're about to eat you. Oh, I, I'm not. I, I know, but it was so scared. <laughs> and 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 it turns out rightfully so. Yeah. But they, the, they toss the turkey into the air and he shoots it. Twice. Once to, once to get the feathers off, which, I mean, I'll give him that. That's a great shot. Yeah. And then the second time it comes down as a fully prepared, like, Thanksgiving turkey. I like how he pronounces Swedish in this, but uh, they kill that turkey, man. Yeah, but, you know, this is how the sausage gets made. Yeah, I guess so. In here, one, two, one, <laughs> This next one was funny. We haven't seen a lot of Beauregard this week, but, uh, you know, he's he's doing the best that he can. This is a, a walking OSHA violation. Oh, yeah, this is, yeah. But we see the return of the Flying Zucchini Brothers as they plan to hurl themselves from a height of 200 feet and dive into a bucket of water. Beauregard, <laughs> not unlike George, is very possessive of buckets and decides that he's going to pick it up and try to get to work just after they make the jump. Which means, <laughs> if this is the last time we see the Flying Zucchini Brothers, it's super dark. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the Flying Zucchini Brothers will hurl themselves from a height of 200 feet into a water-filled bucket. Are you ready back there? Yeah, yeah, we're ready. The Flying Zucchinis! I mean, you can tell how it's going to go as soon as it starts, but it's still funny. But yeah, that's all there is to it. There's not much to say about it. Uh, just, just sort of splats. Zucchini Brothers go splat. Yeah. <laughs> Full of fruits and vegetables up here. Hmm. Perchance Statler and Waldorf were thinking of throwing a party. Well, this much food won't go very far. Well, they only wanted to throw it as far as the stage. Oh, oh, oh for sure. We get ready for, I guess, what our finale is, but I just want to take a second out because, one, I wasn't expecting to actually see Clive Coenga, and two, yeah. I was not expecting him to remind me of Jeffrey Dahmer. Something about those glasses and that mustache. And I don't think Dahmer even necessarily had a mustache, but like it's the super 70s like accountant look. It is. But and, and listen, I want to before I say this, I want to make it clear. I'm not trying to make light of anything, but this man is registered on some kind of list somewhere. I'm glad I'm not the only one that was concerned. Yes. I don't know why. It, like, I can't articulate why it raises the red flag, but I'm just sort of like. You may think he's a nice gentleman, but um, he ain't. Yeah. Uh, you just you can just, you can just tell. <laughs> um, it's just there's something off about him. 
There is something very upsetting about the fact that the song he decided to sing was Municipal Vermin Abatement Code. Um, because what is vermin to him and how strongly does he feel about this? He's very, he, he listen, man, he, he's the singing civil servant. He gets up there and he sings laws and municipal codes. Section one, rats, subheading infestation, rodent populations in an urban area. You should see what he does with a good tax code. Because uh, Danny, this is a weird bit here where Danny doesn't want to do the open, the closing number. So I would expect this to be something that Kermit finds frustrating, but he's like, yeah, we'll just do it. It's, uh, it's fine. We'll just, we'll just let this serial killer end the show. I mean, it was the seventies. You didn't know who was or wasn't. I mean, you still probably don't know who is or isn't, but still. Yeah. I'm not saying he's the Zodiac, because now we know who he was, and apparently he wasn't a Muppet. Anyway, so Dandy doesn't want to sing backstage. To be fair, he's been getting a lot of grief all show, and he probably has a pretty decent amount of stage fright. Yeah, I think that is the thing. He's a little beaten down, right? But we get to hear Inchworm again, which I neither love nor hate. Two and two are four. Four and four are eight. That's pretty. We've heard it on the show before. It was first performed on Sesame Street, and then Charles Aznavour sang it on season one in a very Sesame Street-like setup. And the thing is, this is from the 1951 film Hans Christian Andersen, which Danny starred in. So this could be very personal to him. I don't think he did a bad yeah. job with it. He seemed like he was having a good time. It just, especially after our, our closer from the first episode this week. It's it's much more subdued, obviously. Yeah, they did Inchworm with Asnavor, but this is Danny Kaye's song. Because mm-hmm. that's the only reason why I can think of, like they would have him do it when they've already done Inchworm. Mm. You know? Well, they've done that with uh, some other songs as well. Yeah, but not usually like, I don't know, like this, because you're, you're just like, oh man, they've already done this. Inchworm, inchworm, measuring the marigold. You and your arithmetic, you'll probably go far. And I agree with you. I don't love it or hate it. Um, I think it's a lovely melody. It always, I don't know, it got real literal where she got a real little green inchworm in his hand. I feel like they did that uh, the other times, too, didn't they? Yeah. I like the staging in the Charles Aznavour one better. um, Because it had, remember, it had that silhouette in the children in the tent. It was nice. It just, it's, it was somewhere between Sesame Street and uh, Charlie Duvall's Fairytale Theater. It was a little, uh, little, little too low key for me for a finale. It also didn't contrast, really, outside of maybe the Swedish Chef bit, but it wasn't a mellow episode, but it was approaching mellow. Yeah, I'd say it's a pretty mellow episode. Seems to me you stop and see how beautiful they are. And here's something we've never seen before. We have have a little bit of business to do before we do the uh the goodbye danny and i guess this is them closing out the arc for the backstage but danny goes to talk to statler and waldorf which i guess has sort of been his elephant in the room yeah uh but he realizes that the k that statler and waldorf have been referring to well i wonder if that k has done his act yet 
Well, thank goodness we're not there to know. Imagine a tuned clam player. Mm, I hate that Manny K. <laughs> Manny K? It turns out he's that Danny K is actually one of their favorite performers. Extending the olive branch, Danny invites both of them on stage for the show's closing. Kermit's pretty cool about it, all things considered. He calls them family. You know, if you show up at Kermit the same time... Kermit says they're family. Yeah. That's a step. If you show up all the time and you're consistently there as a presence... But as we pointed out earlier, you don't always get along with your family. Oh, absolutely. There are a few people that can piss you off like family can. They may be family, but I'm not, I'm not having Thanksgiving dinner with these guys. <laughs> I'm not arguing climate change over turkey. The problematic uncles at Thanksgiving? Or your problematic uncle and his friend? Yeah, so so it turns out the whole time it's been a misconception. Statler and Waldorf have gotten a t- have uh, have gotten a little bit of comeuppance, and they have missed what they probably would have really enjoyed, which is the Danny K show. But this Manny K sounds terrible. He's just a little off key. Hey, listen, be with us next time when our guest will be one of the world's greatest tuned clam players. Oh, just say good night. Oh, clam player! <laughs> we'll see you next time on the Muppet Show. <laughs> You get a, a post credit scene with Statler and Waldorf reaching the conclusion that it's better for them to be in the show because they don't have to watch it at that point. I enjoyed this week. Yeah, it was it was a good week. Next time, Bear on Patrol. So next episode, we're going to watch episode 317 with British comedy legend Spike Milligan. And then also episode 318 with uh, actress Leslie Uggams. And I do believe there's also an appearance by a giant yellow bird. Check us out, lunaticdaring.com, at lunaticdaring. I don't know. Keep your head up, people. (laughs) Keep your head up. Uh, (laughs) My name is Chad. My name is Nick. (laughs) And thank you for listening. Feet of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podolitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. There was something thrilling about being in the show tonight. Yep, not having to watch it. <laughs> <laughs>